Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your goodness, and thanks for your love and your grace and your mercy, and for your word, a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. Lord, you're so good to us to give us this word, and so we don't take it lightly, and we are truly grateful, and we ask that you would just guide us now, as only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, if you would, to Ezekiel chapter 11. Today, Lord willing, we read 11 and 12. And again, just maybe this, um, as I'm thinking about it, kind of a reminder of, you know, what we probably already know. But that is, you know, you might say, well, there's some passages in the Bible that are a little more fun to read or a little more maybe even exciting to read or, or whatever like that. But can I just encourage you guys this? I've been a Christian for a few decades now, and I've noticed something among Christians over the last few decades, and that is some of them are more resilient than others. Does that make sense? Some Christians have this, like, thing, like, I guess we'd call it faithfulness. Uh, You might call it resilience. And sadly, I've seen a lot of Christians over the years. I've, I've been around Christian stuff and Christian people long enough that sadly, I've seen over the years a good handful of people just fall away or crash and burn. And, and let me just say this. It's not just like uh, nobody's exempt. I'll tell you, I hope I can say this on tape, which is usually what I say right before I say something on tape. Tracy and I were flipping through a, um, well, Tracy's, she's cleaning out the basement, um, some stuff, and I came across a series of, of teachings. The first time I went to a Calvary Chapel Senior Pastors Conference uh, out in California. This was, I don't know, probably 10 years ago. And uh, when I, it was, I was super blessed by, the, by it and all that kind of stuff. And anyway, as I left, I got a copy of the, of the discs. I, I think they were audio discs at that time. Uh, audio discs of it. And I was flipping through that uh, last couple weeks. And I looked back on the first, uh, the first disc is six keynote speakers. We're talking about a Calvary Chapel Seniors Pastor Conference. We know Calvary Chapel rocks. Right. Calvary Chapel is the affiliation of brotherhood of churches that we are a part of. It's not a denomination, but it's an affiliation of brotherhood of churches. So we know that Calvary Chapel rocks. That was a micron better than the first time. Here's my point in all that. Of those three, of those six keynote speakers, well, one is Chuck Smith. He's with the Lord. Of the remaining, I'm sorry, there were five. There were five. One is Chuck Smith. He's with the Lord. Two of the other four have crashed and burned. And so I say that not condemningly. My heart goes out to those guys. Um, but the point is, 
There is something about being a resilient believer, and I, I, I pray desperately that I am a resilient believer. I don't ever assume or presume that I will always be a resilient believer. God is faithful, right? God, I get God's sovereignty. I get all that, right? God doesn't forsake his children, all of that. But I just know this. I know that we need to go the distance. And there's something about being students of the word that I think is not a guarantee, but it is vital. It's a vital ingredient of going the distance. And I have to believe that if we showed up here this morning, frankly, you showed up here this morning probably knowing you're going to be studying Ezekiel. You probably didn't come here this morning necessarily because it was easy. You probably came here with some degree of a longing to be one of those resilient people. Fair enough? Because if you didn't, you didn't come. Right? And that's okay. But the point is, we got to read the easy stuff. We got to read the hard stuff. We got to read the fun stuff. We got to read the light stuff. We got to read the heavy stuff. We got to own it. As Ezekiel himself, right? God gave him the scroll and God said, eat it. As a word picture for us. This needs to be who we are. It needs to be who we are. And so, that was just a, brand, a rant. Um, because you can do that on your birthday, right? You can rant. Um, that this is why we read these chapters. Fair enough? Yes. So let me encourage you. Yes, I'm going to be teaching through Ezekiel, Lord willing, barring the rapture of the church, which is ever closer, um, until we're done with it. And then we go back to the New Testament, right? And that's how it rolls. But let me just tell you, let me encourage you, be a student of the Word of God. The Word of God is living and powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, and it's able to discern the thoughts and intents of our hearts. It's not a history book. It's God's Word written down to us. God of all creation, the God of all creation, chose to communicate to us, and He chose to do it this way. Now you may say, I wish he would have done it in a, some other way. He's God, we're not. He makes the rules. He chose to do it this way. So let me encourage us, own it. Own it. Own it. Is that fair? So, that's my rant. Ezekiel finds himself among the captives in Babylon. You recall because of the Jewish people's uh, failure to be resilient, they adopted the uh, idolatry of the surrounding nations of their neighbors, right? Again, a danger for us, a warning sign for us, uh, a call to arms for us that we need to not be um, absorbing the idolatry of our culture. Uh, anyway, they did that. 
And because of that, God uh, dealt with them. He ultimately brought uh, punishment on them by the nation of Babylon. The nation of Babylon came and conquered in three different waves. First one was in 605 BC. A group of captives went off to Babylon. The second one was in 597 BC. Another group of captives come off in Babylon. Ezekiel is one of those in the second group. And then the third group is going to go in, in 586 BC. That'll be when Babylon finally basically destroys Jerusalem and the nation of, of Judah. And so the point is we find ourselves in that sort of interim time, right? Babylon has come and they've kind of won the first couple of skirmishes. And now, you ever notice this when you're kind of going down, when the ship starts to sink and everybody's kind of trying to shore up the, the ship, the, the pressing question is, are we going down or not, right? So the ship is sinking. Everybody back in Jerusalem is saying, yeah, I think we just need to shore up the ship and everybody's going to be good. The captives in Babylon are saying, once they get that ship shored up, we're going back, right? And you recall Jeremiah, when we read through Jeremiah, Jeremiah is telling the people, hey, you guys, you captives over there in Babylon, build houses, plant vineyards, settle down, get used to it. You're going to be there for 70 years. He was very specific. You're going to be there for 70 years. And so that's kind of the setting that we find ourselves in. And the false prophets in Jerusalem were saying, now, you're not going to be there 70 years. You're going to be there about another two weeks. We're going to get this ship shored up and bring everybody back. And so that's kind of the dynamic we got. Everybody got the vibe? The historical vibe? Yeah. Last week, we read... If you weren't here last week, or if you've slept since last week, or if you slept during last week, we read there was a thing that we talked about, the glory of the Lord, the presence of God was departing from the temple. Remember that? We talked about that a little bit. And I, and I want to unpack this a little bit. Um, God is omnipresent. That means God is everywhere, Right? God is right here, God is right here, God is right here, God is, I mean, I'm not God, but you know what I'm saying, the Holy Spirit is in me. Uh, God is everywhere. Psalm 139, David said, where can I go to hide from your presence? I can't go anywhere to hide from your presence. God is everywhere. But there's sort of a second sort of piece of that, if you will, that there was God's presence, right? And in the Old Testament, uh, you remember as the nation was going through the desert, there was the pillar of fire by uh, day and the pillar, of, I'm sorry, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that sort of was hanging over the camp of Israel. And that was really what they understood to be the presence of God. When they built the, uh, the, when they built the tabernacle there in the desert and they had in the Holy of Holies, and remember God gave very specific instructions for building the Ark of the Covenant. And then the Ark of the Covenant was the presence of God. Not taken away from the fact that God is everywhere, but that presence of God was really there. And I think of it, if, if we could use a term to kind of distinguish it, we might talk about the glory of God. Does that make sense? The glory of God was leaving there. As an example, I said Ezekiel chapter 11, right? Have we read verse 1 yet? No, we haven't. So flip back to the left to 1 Samuel chapter 5. 
That's funny. So, um, you know what you have when you have a super uh, well-adjusted guy up here teaching? A guy that is okay acknowledging that he made a wrong reference on his notes. So somewhere in here, this is funny, I'll get it in a minute. Somebody help me out. Uh, Philistines steal the ark. Uh, uh, Hophni and Phineas is, um, Eli dies. Uh, Phineas's wife has a baby. Huh? Chapter four. That was Tracy Murphy, by the way. Everybody give it up for Tracy Murphy. First Samuel, what Tracy Murphy was pointing out to me, she is my help me given to me by God for moments like this. Did Anna have it too? Oh, Anna said it first. It takes more than one because I need that much help. Turn to First Samuel chapter 4, ladies and gentlemen. That is funny. Wow, it's going to be a long day. 1 Samuel chapter 4, starting in verse 16. The Philistines went out to, the Israelites went to battle against the Philistines. And, you know, again, they've lost a couple skirmishes. And they decide, Philistines, or the Israelites have this great idea. They're going to take the Ark of the Covenant with them out to battle. Okay? Because, uh, if you look at chapter 4, verse 3, they said, hey, when it comes with us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. Can I suggest to you, you got a bad start if you're calling the presence of God it. That's a bad sign. That means you're carrying the Ark of the Covenant to the battle as like a good luck charm, right? Does God want to be regarded as a good luck charm for battle? I don't think so. So, you know how that would end up. They wind up getting conquered by the Philistines. The Philistines steal the ark, uh, and Eli is the priest at that time, uh, and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they're wicked priests. But anyway, Eli is an old priest at the time, and he's sitting back home waiting for the messenger to come back from battle. That's the scene, all right? Chapter, five, verse 16, chapter 4, verse 16. Then the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle, and I fled today from the battle line. And he said, What happened, my son? So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great slaughter among the people. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. Then it happened, when he made mention of the ark of God, that Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel for 40 years. So picture the scene. Israel, the, uh, Eli the priest has been judging Israel for 40 years. They're gone off to battle, taking their good luck charm, Ark of the Covenant, which had the presence of God, uh, the, the glory of God there. But they took it as a good luck charm. They lose the battle. Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, are killed in battle, and the Ark of the Covenant has been stolen by the, Phil by the Philistines. This is a bad day, yeah. right? And then when Eli hears about it, he falls over back in his chair, breaks his neck, and dies. Okay? 
Now, his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, happened to be with child that day, due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth, for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, Do not fear, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. So it's a great story. I, I, I like that story. Um, there's just tons of lessons in there. But, but one is there was this glory of God that was sort of embodied in that Ark of the Covenant, right? And uh, when the Philistines captured that Ark, when, you know, Hophni and Phinehas are dead, Phinehas's wife is dead, Eli is dead, the Ark has been captured. I mean, everything's falling apart. The wheels are falling off, right? And everything's unraveling. And so, uh, you know, basically her conclusion is the glory has departed. And the word Ichabod, the name Ichabod, meant the glory has departed. And so there is a thing where God's presence can be everywhere, but there's also presence, right? And again, I, I use the example that we used last week and in that quiz. Our Christian experience, our Christian life, is it a religion or is it a relationship? It's a relationship. It is everything but a religion. Religion is when we try to earn our way up to some kind of higher power, some kind of nirvana, some kind of God, some kind of something. Christianity is when God Almighty recognized that we were sinners and we needed a Savior to solve our sin problem. And He came out of heaven, died on a cross, was buried, rose again. And we, in response to that, say, wow, I recognize that. Thank you, Lord. And I want the salvation that's offered through Jesus Christ to apply to my life, right? That's the difference, fundamental difference. One goes this way, one goes this way. Religion goes this way, relationship comes this way. All right? So anyway, as in any relationship, there's a physical presence, but there's a presence, right? I mean, back in the days when my wife and I used to have struggles, she might say something like, I feel like you're far away, right? But I could be sitting right there. You know, what I'm, you know what I'm saying, right? Like the, you know, the billboard that says, uh, my wife says I never listened to her, or something like that, right? She's just like, you're there, but you're not there, right? Well, God is there, but maybe he's not there. And let me just encourage us, God needs to be here. We need to be all in with God, right? Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 1. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the Lord's house, which faces eastward, and there at the door of the gate was, were 25 men, among whom I saw Jezaniah, the son of Azur, and Pelatia, the son of Benaiah, princes of the people. And so these are probably, we read last week, 25 guys there, if you want to reference chapter 8, verse 16, 25 guys are worshiping the sun with their backs to the temple, which was just horribly offensive. And these are probably the same 25 guys. And again, sorry, 
if you weren't here last week. God is, Ezekiel is in Babylon amongst the captives. God has carried him in a vision, in a sense. It's, he says, and again, with visions, it's hard to discern, right? Like physically, where is Ezekiel? Well, Ezekiel's probably still in Babylon, but in his mind, God picked him up by the hair and dropped him there in Jerusalem at the temple, okay? So that was the context of chapter 10 and 11, and we see that sort of continued on here in chapter, uh, I'm sorry, in 9 and 10, and we see that carried on in chapter 11. All right, so Ezekiel's still in this vision. And he said to me, Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and give wicked counsel in this city who say the time is not near to build houses. The city is the cauldron and we are the meat. Therefore, prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man. So I want to break these down a little bit. First of all, these are the men who devise iniquity and give wicked counsel. Let me just say this. Again, you all, by definition, came to church today, okay? And so I'm going to go out on a limb and say you're not the kind of people that devise iniquity. The word devise, the Hebrew word, means to plot, to contrive, to invent, like to creatively come up with iniquity, okay? Now, as believers... It's possible for us to, the way I think of it is, we can stumble into iniquity, right? We need to be diligent. We need to know the Word. We need to own the Word. We need to be led by the Holy Spirit. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit to empower us to live according to the Word. But even in that, we would acknowledge that occasionally we stumble and fall, right? But let me just say, there's a difference between a person that stumbles and a person who devises iniquity, right? And I'm not saying that because I'm going to suggest that anybody here is a person who devises iniquity, but I'm going to say that everyone here is exposed to people who devise iniquity. Is that fair? There are people in this world, I'm just calling it out, there are people in this world who devise iniquity. They sit around and come up with ways to do it. They may not even be be aware of that, but they're sitting around coming up with ways to do it. And what else do they do? They give wicked counsel. Now that applies to us, right? And so we need to have tons of discernment. How do we have discernment? Again, know the Word. Know the Word. We need to have discernment to guard against those who devise iniquity so we can say, "Ah, I see where that's coming from. Because nobody ever comes to you and says, I am devising iniquity, and I would suggest that you stumble into it. Nobody does that. It's well-veiled. And so we need to be people of discernment, of, of, of honestly razor-sharp discernment to recognize it for what it is. So these people devise iniquity, and they give wicked counsel. Proverbs 6, verse 18 says that there are six things that the Lord hates. One of them is a heart that devises wicked plans. We need to stay far away from these people. Don't worry if you offend them, because guess what? You will. If you stay away from these people, you'll offend them sooner or later. Don't worry about that. So, anyway, Jeremiah back in Jerusalem is telling all the people... 
hey, uh, it's time to settle down, as I said. Settle down in Babylon, build houses. You who are in Jerusalem, you, you ought to just give in to the king of Babylon and go over there and settle down and build houses and, and chill there because you're going to be there for 70 years. And so these false prophets were saying, hey, it's not time to build houses. We need to still fight, shore up the, uh, our defenses and, and fight off against these guys. And so the, what they're saying, what these false prophets are saying in a sense is, is like this city is the cauldron and we're the meat. Like we're, the, we're, we're protected. It's like we're protected inside this, this cast iron pot. Well, there's two ways to look at that, right? Like we're protected inside the cast iron pot, but what's the cast iron pot going to do? It's going to get cooked, right? So Ezekiel's going to flip this thing back on its head. Then the Spirit fell upon me and said, said to me, Speak. Thus says the Lord. Thus you have said, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. You have multiplied your slain in this city, and you have filled its streets with the slain. And so please know this. God knows the thoughts of mankind. He says, I know, I know your thoughts. He also knows the deeds. And in this case, he knows that they've killed many people. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, your slain whom you've laid in the midst, they are the meat, and the city is the cauldron, but I will bring you out of the midst of it. So yes, this city, it's for, it's for destruction. It's for destruction. So you might say, yeah, the city is the cauldron and we're the meat, but it's not for protection. It's for destruction. And uh, God is going to call people out of there to be, uh, while Jerusalem is destroyed, he's going to call them out of there for 70 years. Verse 8, he goes on, You have feared the sword, and I'll bring a sword upon you, says the Lord God. And I will bring you out of its midst and deliver you into the hands of strangers and execute judgments on you. You shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. And so many people are going to die in the famine. Many people are going to die by the sword. And then what's going to happen? Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Can I tell you this? This is a recurrent theme in these last few weeks. Have you noticed this? How many times he said, then you will know I am the Lord. Often that comes after, after judgment, after destruction, after discipline. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And again, the difference between relationship and, and religion. Relationship says God has done all this. God, is, God created the world. God created me. God saved me. God redeemed me from my life of sin. God lives and breathes and gives me all my life and breath and have my being in Him, right? And we recognize that. Then we shall know that He is the Lord. Really, what this comes down to, this human experience, is whether or not we know and acknowledge that God is the Lord, right? But what's going to happen sooner or later? Philippians chapter 2. Sooner or later every knee shall bow and every tongue confess in all of human history that Jesus Christ is Lord. Think about that. Every human being that's ever existed, one day, in God's grand scheme of things, Adolf Hitler will bow his knee and confess with his mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord. And then you will know that I am the Lord. 
Sometimes it comes after great judgment, right? God gives us the option of being the remnant that survives the great judgment, right? Who is he? This great judgment that's going to come upon Jerusalem, has it come yet? I've said this the last few weeks. Has it come yet? No, it hasn't come yet. Why is God, why is God doing this? To warn his people. What does God love to do? Warn his people. And he doesn't waste his breath warning his people. So, then you shall know I am the Lord is a recurrent theme. Verse 11. This city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be the meat in its midst. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. For you have not walked in my statutes, nor executed my judgments, but have done according to all the customs of the Gentiles, which are all around you. Now, please notice that word Gentiles. We read that word, and it's like, yeah, Gentiles, that's what we are. Gentile means non-Jew, right? You're either Jew or Gentile. And we read that word, we're like, yeah, Gentiles, what's the big deal? But to the Jewish mindset, this book is written to the Jewish mindset, to the Jewish mindset, we might translate the word Gentile as scumbag. Because they had this, such a pompous religious attitude that they were elite and everybody else was scumbags. Do we ever get like that? Do we act like we're Christians and everybody else is scumbags? Well, we don't use scumbags as a, well, we don't use that word necessarily. We might say heathen. We might say lost. Right? We might say sinners. Right? Those are all terms we use to do what? To identify a person? <laughs> no. Those are terms we use to distinguish us from them. Right? And if we're honest, if I use the word heathen, Am I just innocently identifying somebody? No. I'm calling myself a non-heathen. Fair enough? Yeah. And that was the Jewish mind. Multiply, I mean, as bad as we can get, that's how the Jewish mindset was. And so God says, and so God uses that. I mean, if I, if I use the word sinner to sort of degrade somebody else, what's God going to quickly, I mean... Through the voice of the Holy Spirit. What's God going to quickly do to me? If I use that word sinner today to describe somebody else in a sort of a downgrade way, what's the first thing God's going to speak into my heart by that beautifully convicting voice of the Holy Spirit? Oh, by the way, dude, you're a sinner. You're a sinner. Saved by grace. Lest anyone should boast. Ephesians chapter 2. Not of works. By grace. So God says, you know what? I'm going to judge you. Then, then you shall know that I am the Lord because you've not walked in my statutes nor exceeded my executed my judgments. You've just done everything that the heathen, sinners, the scumbags are doing. It's all about what, they've, what their works were. Their works testified to who they were in their heart. You think about this. You want to know what somebody highly values? Follow their works. Right? You want to know what somebody believes? Follow their works. Right? You want to know somebody's conviction? Listen to them talk. Right? We live out what we believe. 
So we could have great theology. We could have great theology, and yet what matters is what we do. The words that I declare, I believe X, Y, Z, really don't matter until you see my behavior be consistent with that. In this case, God says, I know your works. You've not walked in my statutes. You've not executed my judgments. You acted like a bunch of scumbag Gentiles. That's you. So we can act pious. We can think we're insightful. But it really boils down to what we do over the long haul. Verse 13, now it happened while, while I was prophesying that Pelatia, the son of Beniah, died. And then I fell on my face and cried with a loud voice and said, Ah, oh, Lord God, will you make a complete end of the remnant of Israel? And so just notice this, while, while Ezekiel is prophesying here, one of the leaders died. And I want you to notice what Ezekiel does here. As Christians, we need to notice what Ezekiel does here. He is compassionate. He never says, oh, too bad, so sad for you, loser, sinner, scumbag. He said, oh, Lord, my heart breaks. Does our heart break for those that die apart from the Lord? Does our heart break for those who live apart from the Lord and try to navigate this, this earth? I can't imagine trying to navigate this earth apart from the Lord. But our hearts should break for those people. They are not the enemy. It would be well for us as Christians to get this once and for all. People that don't embrace the Word of God like we do, people that don't believe God exists, people that don't believe in the truth of Scripture, they are not the enemy. We know that. But again, do our actions testify to the fact that we know that? Do our words testify to the fact that we know that? Right? They are not the enemy. And so we need to be compassionate towards, towards these folks as Ezekiel was compassionate when this guy died. Again, verse 14, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, your brethren, your relatives, your countrymen, and all the house of Israel in its entirety are those about whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Get far away from the Lord. This land has been given to us as a possession. So here we even have a further bit of sort of pompous uh, arrogance. Those folks then back in Jerusalem, now remember we said by, na by this time, two groups of captives captives have been carried off to Babylon. The ones remaining in Jerusalem, now they've got this attitude that uh, God's punishment was on those guys that got carried off. We're the, we're the preserved elite, right? These guys are smug. These guys say, yep, we're, we're, we got it going. And uh, they actually had it backwards. And again, Jeremiah tried to tell them back in Jerusalem. Ezekiel's trying to tell everybody that's in Babylon. It is very easy to look at the same set of circumstances and come up with two different conclusions. Again, 
How do, we dis- how do we sort that through? We look through a biblical lens. We look through a biblical lens. Verse 16. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, although I have cast them far, among, far off among the Gentiles, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet I shall be a little sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Catch this. The folks back in Jerusalem, they're saying, hey man, we're just protected in this cauldron, this cast iron cooking kettle, <laughs> right? We're protected in it. We're like the good meat and the bad meat's gotten thrown off. You know, all the fat scraps have been thrown off. They got thrown off out into Babylon, but we're just this protected meat here in Jerusalem, right? And God's saying, you know, actually those captives that have been scattered off, I'm going to be I, God, am going to be a little sanctuary for them. I'm going to be a place of refuge for them. How do we know it plays out in history, right? Again, if you're in the moment, you're like, man, Jerusalem still seems like a pretty safe walled city. And people captive in Babylon, you know, in Nebuchadnezzar's prison camps, those guys are in danger. They've been dealt with by God. But God's saying, no, I'm going to be a sanctuary to those people. What's a sanctuary? It's a place of protection. God says, I'm going to be a sanctuary. What's that mean for us? It means the safest place on earth. I love Damien Kyle always says this. The safest place on earth is right in the midst of God's will. If God's will has you in a place that the world is say is dangerous, that's the safest place for you. The safest place on earth is wherever God has you. That's your sanctuary. And we need to be obedient to him. Verse 17, he goes on. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples, assemble you from the countries where you've been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. Now, again, and we're going to get into this a little more uh, today, and actually through the remainder of the book, right, is whenever we're talking prophecy, there's very often sort of a short-range prophecy and then a long-range prophecy, okay? And we've we got to get used to this as we read prophecy. So what's, what's he saying? And usually you can see it because the short-range fulfillment doesn't really fully fulfill what's being said. And if we take Scripture literally, as literally as possible, we've got to give it room to be fulfilled yet later. So, so often we see historically a short-term fulfillment that's not quite complete fulfillment. And then sometimes even we see that more fully fulfilled in Jesus' first coming. And sometimes even yet we see some fulfillment that is yet to be. And we can see that between Jesus' coming and now. And so historically we've got a lot of data points we can look at and say, oh yeah, I see the Word of God being fulfilled right? When we get to, I think, chapter 36 or 37, Ezekiel comes up to a field of dry bones, and God's going to raise all them back to life. And then God says, this is the whole house of Israel, right? Now, you might read that if you were in the moment, and you'd say, oh yeah, that means they're going to come back in 70 years. But not the whole house of Israel came back after 70 years, only the southern kingdom of Judah. So it's kind of a partial fulfillment. You see this? Now, 
What happened in 1948? The whole house of Israel came back, right? That's pretty miraculous if you think about it. A nation ceased to exist from 70 A.D. to 1948. Maybe God's got something going. And maybe that scripture is reliable, even though it didn't seem reliable for almost 1,900 years. Right? So anyway, all that to say, God says, I'm going to assemble, I'm going to gather you from the peoples, assemble you from the countries where you've been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. So that is going to come fulfilled in 70 years when they come back, but it's also fulfilled in 1948 and in the great regathering that will come uh, during the millennium, millennial kingdom uh, after the return of Jesus to planet earth. Verse 18, and they will go there and they will take away all its detestable things and all its abominations from there. So when they come back, they're going to basically get rid of all these pagan idols. One thing, you know, when the nation of Israel came back, or when the nation of Judah came back, they'd had 70 years in Babylon. Babylon was the capital of pagan idol worship, right? 70 years of that made the Jews say, eh, that doesn't work very well. I think we'll leave that behind. And so, you know, they weren't perfect, but they didn't struggle with pagan idol worship uh, after they came back. Verse 19, Then I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them, and take the stony heart out of their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes, and keep my judgments, and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. But as for those whose hearts follow the desire for their detestable things and their abominations, I will recompense their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord. So here's what God's saying. Catch this now. This is kind of how we read prophecy. God says, you know what? Where they've been scattered, I'm going to bring them back. That happened 70 years later. And God says, when I bring them back, I'm going to give them a new heart. I'm going to take away their hard heart, their stony heart. And I'm going to give them a soft heart of flesh that will love me and serve me. I'm going to be their God and they're going to be my people. Did that happen after the 70 years of captivity? Not very well. You read Ezra and Nehemiah, right? Those books of the restoration, they come back and it seems like it takes 12 minutes before they're into the same old sinful patterns of before. They floundered. Fast forward a few hundred years, Jesus comes along. How's the Jewish nation looking as a, as a religious entity when Jesus shows up on the scene? Horrible. So horrible they didn't recognize the God, the God of all creation. They killed him. So, this regathering, 70 years later, was a partial fulfillment, but that great fulfillment with this changed heart and all that, again, comes in the millennial kingdom. When Jesus comes back after the great tribulation, sets foot on planet earth, sets things in order, sets up a, a millennial kingdom where he'll reign for a thousand years. Satan is bound for a thousand years. The Jews regather, right? continue the regathering that they started in 1948 and Jesus sets up that kingdom and there will be a change of heart he'll give them a, a heart of flesh take away their heart of stone they'll walk in his statutes and they'll keep his judgments and do them they shall be his people and he shall be their God and we'll be there with them 
Verse 22, so the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was high above them. And look at this, the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. So I want you to notice this. Last week we read in chapters 9 and 10, you know, the glory of the Lord, that presence I'm talking about, that glory of the Lord was in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And then he kind of went to the, uh, to the sort of the threshold. And then he went to the east gate of the, of the temple. And we last, last left, the, left it there, chapter 10, verse 19, in the east gate of the temple. And now the glory of the Lord has departed like Ichabod, right? It's almost like God's glory left a piece at a time. Or, or it's, almost like, it's almost like he paused, as you read it, it's almost like he paused at the threshold, like, okay, are they going to repent? I mean, God knows, right? But it's almost like, ah, let's give him another chance. And then two chapters later, we read that he's gone. Then the Spirit took me up, verse 24, and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea, back into Babylon, to those in captivity. And the vision that I had seen went up from me, so I spoke to those in captivity of all the things the Lord had shown me. So he shares uh, the vision with the captives. Chapter 12, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house, which has eyes to see but does not see, and ears to hear but does not hear, for they are a rebellious house. Isn't it cool that God gives us so graciously the means to hear him. He gives us eyes to see to those of us who have eyes to see. He gives us ears to hear to those of us who have ears to hear. But even these people, they had eyes, but they didn't see spiritually. They had ears, but they didn't hear spiritually, right? So what's he do? He's going to give them another one of these action sermons to try to get their, the point across. God continually reaches out. And to the extent that our eyes may be limited or our ears may be limited, God gives us the means to receive what he wants us to have. And so here again, these folks, they're not going to see. They're not going to listen. Therefore, verse 3, son of man, do this. Prepare your belongings for captivity and go into captivity by day in their sight. You shall go from your place into captivity to another place in their sight. And it may be that they will consider, though they are a rebellious house, by day you shall bring out your belongings in their sight as though going into captivity, and at evening you shall go in their sight like those who go into captivity. Dig through the wall in their sight and carry your belongings out through it. In their sight you shall bear them on your shoulders and carry them out at twilight. You shall cover your face so that you cannot see the ground, for I have made you a sign to the house of Israel. So, they won't listen to your words, they won't see or hear spiritually. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to demonstrate to them what's going to happen. And the idea was, you know, when Babylon is coming, when there's a threat of invasion, if you will, these guys would have their essential belongings in a bag, like ready to go, right? Because when Babylon comes, we need to get out of here, right? So... Prepping is nothing new, okay? 600 B.C., they were prepping, right? They had their bags ready, they were going to go. 
And the idea was that, you know, when the city gets besieged, they'll try to dig out through the wall somewhere, you know, maybe a nook or a cranny and try to escape with their bag of stuff. And so Ezekiel is, is sort of demonstrating that he's digging out of the wall of his house and grabbing his bag of stuff and he's, and he's doing that, like in the city, to people that have already been captured, right? He's not warning these people, they've already been captured. He's demonstrating this as a word picture for those that are, have yet to be captured or conquered or besieged. In verse 7, So I did as I was commanded. I brought out my belongings by day as though going into captivity, and at evening I dug through the wall with my hand. I brought them out at twilight, and I bore them on my shoulder in their sight. Can you read that verse 7, first sentence? So I did as I was commanded. You know, if you've had kids in your home, you know there's like a whole nother layer of vocabulary. Things like, yeah, I'll get to it in a minute. Things like, yeah, but he started it. Things like, that's not fair. Things like, hang on. And oh, my favorite, can you stop flipping out? <laughs> <laughs> right? Does Ezekiel do any of that? God, catch this now. God says, after we read through all the weird stuff he did in chapters, I think, four and five, God says, tell you what, pack up a bag full of stuff and dig a hole out of the side of your house to kind of crawl out. Right? I mean, we would say, help me out, God. What's the point in that? I don't get it. Right? We would at least give us some kind of pushback. None from Ezekiel. He just did it. Notice this verse 8. And in the morning, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, has not the house of Israel, the rebellious house, said to you, what are you doing? So God has now given him sort of the answer. Hey, by the way, have they said to you, hey, Ezekiel, that's weird. What are you doing? Can I give us another little litmus test of how our lives ought to roll? There should be somebody in this world that looks at your life and looks at your decisions and looks at your values and looks at your convictions and says, what are you doing? And we don't want to be weird for the sake of being weird. But if the world doesn't regard us as just a little bit weird, I have to ask myself, I'll just tell you for myself, there are people in this world that think I am nuts. Don't nod your head. There are people in this world that think I'm crazy for the decisions that I've made. And I can tell you that it's those decisions that bring some of the greatest blessing in my life. And I wouldn't trade them for anything. And the things, and, I, and I've lived this life long enough, 
to tell you that the things that have brought me the greatest blessing in life are pretty generally the things that have brought me the greatest criticism in life. And it's not always a hard and fast. I'm not going to make a doctrine out of it, okay? But I'm just going to tell you, that's a pattern of things I've noticed over the years. The things that I get accused of being nuts about, and they've been plenty, are the things that bring the greatest blessing. So much so that after 60 years of tenure, Nate always says, this is funny, Nate's with the kids, Nate, Nate always says, man, I can't wait to get old. <laughs> I don't care what anybody thinks, <laughs> right? I mean, I'm old enough, I don't care what anybody thinks. Nate's like, that's going to be awesome, <laughs> you know. It's kind of true. It's kind of true. 60-year-olds, I mean, all joint aches aside, would you rather be 60 or 25? Thank you. But really, these people look at Ezekiel and they say, what are you doing? They should look at us and say, what are you doing? And so if people say that, again, check it with Scripture. Do it graciously, but it's a good model. It's a good model. Verse 10, Say to them, thus says the Lord God, The burden concerns the prince of Jerusalem and all the house of Israel who are among them. So just briefly, historically, the prince of, of Jerusalem he's talking about was actually King Zedekiah. Now, I won't go back into all the history from Jeremiah, but by this point in time, King Jehoiachin has been removed. He got removed in that 597 captivity. And Nebuchadnezzar placed Zedekiah as a puppet king back in Jerusalem. Okay? Ezekiel's not acknowledging him as king. So Ezekiel calls him prince. So, just for proper context, this burden concerns the prince of Jerusalem and all the house of Israel who are among them. What did the prince of Jerusalem do? We're going to read about it in a minute. But what did the prince of Jerusalem, Zedekiah, do? He tried to dig out through a wall, grab his stuff, and escape. Okay? So this is very clearly played out. Verse 11. Say, I am assigned to you. As I have done, so shall it be done to them. They shall be carried away into captivity, and the prince who is among them shall bear his belongings on his shoulder at twilight and go out. They shall dig through the wall to carry them out through it. He shall cover his face so that he cannot see the ground with his eyes. And so he's going to be kind of, you know, on the down low on his way out the door. Verse 11. I'm sorry, verse 13. I will also spread out my net over him. And he shall be caught in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon, to the land of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans is just a name for Babylonians. Yet he shall not see it, though he shall die there. Now, I'm almost done, but I want you to ratchet your brains out of neutral for a minute. Okay? If your brain is not in neutral, uh, I'm sorry. If it was neutral, ratchet it back into drive. Okay? Because I want you to catch this. This is key. So based on this verse, Zedekiah we're talking about is going to be captured. 
He's going to be taken to Babylon, but it says, he shall not see it, though he shall die there. That's weird. He's going to be, Zedekiah is going to be taken off to Babylon, but, and he's going to die there, but he's not going to see Babylon. How does that work? Furthermore, Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 3. I just give you that as a reference. We won't read it. In Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 3, Jeremiah prophesied that Zedekiah will be delivered into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he's going to see his face eye to eye, face to face. Now again, and the reason I'm parking on this for a second, is I want us to know this is how we read Scripture. We, read, we have a choice now. A, that's weird and it doesn't add up. Like, he's going to be carried off to Babylon. He's going to die in Babylon. He'll never see Babylon. And yet, he's going to see King Nebuchadnezzar and look him in the eye. Option A, well, there you go. The Bible's full of, starts with a C, rhymes with contradictions, right? The Bible's full of contradictions, right? Or B, we could say, huh, God is smarter than I am. God's Word is God's Word. I don't understand how a virgin can give birth to a child and call his name Emmanuel. But God's big enough to do that. You see this? It fundamentally has to do with how we read the Scripture. You know, last I checked, the nation of Israel has been gone since 70 A.D., I think all those prophecies about nation of Israel in the future, it's got to be like some metaphor or some like cartoon Bible story. Or just a flat out contradiction that proves what we knew all along, and that is the Bible's incorrect. Right? It has to do with how we read Scripture. Right? Some of you know the story. Turn back to Jeremiah chapter 50, 52. How do we reconcile all this? Did he go to Babylon? Did he not go to Babylon? Did he see the king of Nebuchadnezzar? Did he see Babylon? Did he not see Babylon? How do we reconcile all that? Well, God gives us a beautiful history. Jeremiah chapter 52, verse 4, starting in verse 4. And we're almost done. Now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, this is Zedekiah we're talking about, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, God's very specific, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and encamped against it, and they, they built a siege wall around it. So the city was besieged for, until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah, so about a year and a half. By the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, the famine had become so severe in the city that there was no food for the people to, in the land. Then the city wall was broken through, kind of like what we see prophesied. And all the men of war fled and went out of the city by night, at night by way of the gate between the two walls, which was, near the, which was by the king's garden, even, through, even though the Chaldeans were near the city all around. And they went out by way of the plain. 
But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king, and they overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. So a little bit north of Jerusalem, they captured him. And they took the king, and they brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, so a little farther north. They capture him in the plains. They carry him a little bit. They take him a little bit to the north, to the king of Babylon, in the land of Harmath, of Hamath, and he pronounced judgment on him. Then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. And he killed all the princes of Judah in Riblah. And then he also put out the eyes of Zedekiah. And the king of Babylon bound him in bronze fetters, took him to Babylon, and put him in prison till the day of his death. How do we reconcile all these things? He does, in fact, dig out through a hole just exactly like Ezekiel prophesied and demonstrated. He was captured by, king of ba- by the Babylonians, taken a little farther to the north, to Riblah, where he looked Nebuchadnezzar in the eye, face to face. The last thing he saw was the death of his sons and all of his, basically, leaders. And then they put out his own eyes and he carried him off to Babylon. He died in Babylon, though he never saw Babylon, right? How do we read Scripture? Very specifically. God does not need help explaining His Word. God's Word does not need to be fixed. If God says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, then we can say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We don't need to fix it with our modern technology. And it's critical that we know how to read the Bible. So, verse 14, he goes on, I will scatter to every wind all who are around him to help him. And all his troops, and I will draw out the sword after them. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. See this theme? When I scatter them among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries, but I will spare a few of their men from the sword, from famine, from pestilence, that they may declare all their abominations among the Gentiles wherever they go. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So again, a couple of then they, sh- in their sh- they shall knows. And again, a promise of a remnant to be rescued during all this judgment. Verse 17, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, eat your bread with quaking and drink your water with trembling and anxiety and say to the people of the land, Thus says the Lord God to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the land of Israel. They shall eat their bread with anxiety and drink their water with dread so that her land may be emptied of all who are in it because of the violence of all those who dwell in it. Then the cities that are inhabited shall be laid waste and the land shall become desolate and you shall know that I am the Lord. So, knowing that judgment is coming could bring anxiety. Can I just say this? We live in a world right now where there's a lot of talk about the return of Jesus. For good reason. For very good reason. The more we get into Ezekiel, the more you're going to say, Whoa! It could be any time. And that can be sometimes stressful. But can I remind us of this? Philippians chapter 4. We're told to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. 
Somehow I can just say this. In the moment when we need that peace, he'll give it. You've heard me say this before. It's my favorite example. I remember the day that they told my dad he had pancreatic cancer and he was going to die. And I remember asking him, you okay with that? And literally this is two, day, two weeks before he actually died. He's like, I'm good with that. I'm going to be with the Lord. I'm good with that. And I don't think he was faking. You don't fake at those moments. That's when the rubber meets the road. He's like, I mean, he might, have been, he might as well have been talking what he's, about what he's going to have for lunch. And I, I literally, I remember a, a day or two later, or no, a, a week later, I'm sorry. He's home from the hospital, and I go up to see him. I kid you not. He's like, he's sitting in his office in his jammies, <laughs> like chilling. A week before his death. And he's like, um, I mean, it's surreal, frankly. He says, um, make some notes. Six years later, I'm still saying yes, sir, right? Make some notes. Yeah, okay. Um, I got this thing over here, and I want you to take care of that, and I need you to do this. And literally, he, paid his, he died in August. He paid his November property taxes, like that weekend. We only found out that later, right? He's like going through all these, like, I want you to do this. He sends my brother to get the oil changed on his car so the oil, so the car will have a fresh oil change for his widow. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, in the moment when we need it, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Doesn't matter if the Babylonians have us surrounded. What matters is the peace of God. Verse 21. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, what is this proverb that you people have said about the land of Israel, have about the land of Israel, which says, The days are prolonged and every vision fails? Tell them, therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will lay this proverb to rest, and they shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel, but say to them, The days are at hand, and the fulfillment of every vision. For no more shall there be any false vision or flattering divination within the house of Israel. For I am the Lord. I speak, and the word which I speak will come to pass. It will no more be postponed. For in your days, O rebellious house, I will say the word and perform it, says the Lord God. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The Son of Man, look, the house of Israel is saying, The vision that he sees is for many days from now, and the prophecies of times far off. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord God, none of my words will be postponed anymore, but the word which I speak will be done, says the Lord. So again, I wanted to get to this point just for, to kind of wrap it up. The reality is, those folks back in Jerusalem, God's saying, judgment's coming, judgment's coming, judgment's coming. Again, Ezekiel got carried off in 597, right? Eight years later is the final destruction. So during that eight-year time, Ezekiel's saying, Judgment's coming, judgment's coming. The people back in Jerusalem are like, he's talking about a million years from now. Well, what do we care about a million years from now? Nothing. We'll be gone. So that's always the temptation. 
The temptations, yeah, that means they're talking about a long time from now. And again, when the final curtain falls, if you will, what are people going to be saying? Uh, don't worry about it yet. I still got to have my fun. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 and 4 says this, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. I believe we're in the last days, however you want to define that. And one of the ways I know it is, guess what we have? What do we have on earth today? Scoffers. In the last days, scoffers will come, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, yeah, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. That's what they're going to say. Yeah, right. You've said that before. Yeah, right. It's getting close. Yeah, Jesus was going to come back in 1984. <laughs> Scoffers. Right? Yeah, you said that before. <laughs> right? Just like the days of Noah, Jesus said. Right? Hey, Noah, what are you working on there? Boat. Picture this. Big boat. Why? It's going to rain. We've never had rain. What's rain? Well, it's when, never mind. What's it going to do? It's going to cause a big flood. Really? Everybody's going to die. Noah's doing this for, I think, 100 years. Can you imagine being scoffed at like that for 100? Talk about being a person that people say, what are you thinking? Right? So we're in good company. We're in good company. So God does, God does keep his word even when his word warns of judgment. One day everyone will acknowledge him and then they will know that he is Lord. God's word is reliable. It doesn't need to be fixed. And Jesus could come back today. And in the meantime, we get the privilege. Check this out. We get the privilege of enjoying fellowship with the glory of God. We don't need to say the glory of God has departed because of our rebellion. We can say, come Lord Jesus, right? Like we want his fellowship and we enjoy his fellowship and we embrace his fellowship. It's a tremendous blessing. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for your goodness. We're thankful for the hard warnings of, of Scripture. And yet we're thankful for the promise of eternal life. We're thankful for the promise of abundant life. We're thankful for the promise that you said, In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We're thankful that you give us the peace of God which passes all understanding. And that it's that peace that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We're thankful that you give us the means to see and hear and perceive what you have for us in the way that you determine for us so that we can receive your word. Lord, you give us your word for discernment. You give us your Holy Spirit for strength, for guidance, 
And Lord, we're thankful for all of that. So help us today, Lord, to appreciate and to acknowledge our sweet fellowship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.